Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Welcome everyone into the new year of 2024. Woo! Hooray! Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) So we have a lot of hopefully interesting and fun topics for you planned this year. And we're starting out with a real banger. A ranking of classical pieces with strange and unusual, or just loud, percussion sections. I see what you did there. (laughs) Do you? I do. Well, I hear what you did there. These are all bangers. Yes. So, what then does this mean? Well, we've decided to put together an episode about composers that get a little silly with their percussion. We're going to attempt to pick some of the most iconic, outrageous or possibly obnoxious uses of banging on things in classical music. And most of these pieces we picked based on their originality of percussion instruments or the iconic feature of the percussion section that's uncharacteristic of more standard classical works. That being said, we did focus on these kind of standard fair classical canon pieces, so you're not going to find any helicopters, purely electronic works, percussion ensembles, etc. on this list. And also, please keep in mind, we are not percussionists ourselves, so we've, we're not fully immersed in the percussion canon, pun intended. So if we've missed something really big, please let us know, and maybe we'll do a full feature on it, if there's something that we both get to learn about. Ooh, a feature. Yes, indeed. (laughs) But for now, we will be featuring 13. Yes, 13. We are making it a lucky number today. Pieces Mm -hmm. of outrageous crash bang percussion. And we will be ranking these on a scale of 1 to 10, purely subjective, with 1 being, this is actually pretty standard, we could hear this on the street anywhere we go, and 10 being, wow, that's a real cannon. (laughs) (laughs) and starting with wow that's a real canon i think everybody could see this coming tchaikovsky's 1812 overture is an absolutely iconic piece of music for so many reasons not least because it was designed to be played with what 16 canon shots Mm -hmm. i think that sounds right this is also our minimal research podcast, so if we say something this a little is, wrong, a I'm so sorry. Podcast. <laughs> We're taking a little break for the holidays here. <laughs> Along with uh, artillery pieces, Tchaikovsky had also written this piece to be performed with church bells, and not just any church bells. In the inaugural performance of the 1812 Overture, it was supposed to be performed with a massive orchestra backed by... Um, All these cannons fired from a state-of-the-art electrical panel to ensure their timing. And then on cue, all of the church bells in Moscow were supposed to ring. It was great because it was supposed to be 
featured at this huge celebration of Russia's victory over France in 1812, commissioned in 1880. And this is a piece, of course, that Tchaikovsky wrote in six weeks. It was supposed to be performed in a huge square before the giant cathedral of Christ the Savior, which was commissioned and built to support or to commemorate the Russian victory. However, this performance did not take place. It was supposed to be this grand thing. However, it ended up being a little over ambitious, <laughs> and the assassination of the Tsar kind of deflated the whole project. And so it was no. instead performed in a tent next to the unfinished cathedral. Aww, how sad. I know. But I would say it's had a resurgence in our modern era. And it's performed with, like, artillery sections. Like, when you go on to Spotify and you search up 1812 Overture, we'll say, like, the New York Philharmonic with the such-and-such artillery field band or whatever. (laughs) And, you know, like, they still play it with as much aplomb as possible. And and it's, it's got sort of a storied history as a composition, of course. Famously, Tchaikovsky hated this piece. He did not enjoy what has probably become his most played and reproduced work. Other than the Nutcracker. Um, <laughs> that's true. Which, didn't he also I, I not like that is, too much? <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I would argue that this is probably more famous, um, or at least more performed uh, than the Nutcracker is, at least the end of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is where the canons come in. So the most correct. important part for our purposes yeah. anyway. Right. <laughs> um, he famously didn't like it. But it was, it's actually a very, it's a, it's a triumphant piece of programmatic music because you can really listen to all of the different themes, starting with La Marseille, La Marseille, I apologize to any French speaker, uh, the French national anthem representing Napoleon's forces, and you can hear it marching in and becoming victorious until it is finally overwhelmed by Russian folk music and driven from Moscow to the peeling of the bells and the firing of 16 cannons. The power of Russian folk music never fails to amaze me. It was also parodied by a man named Malcolm Arnold, Sir Malcolm Arnold, Yes. Um, in, in the, I think in the late 90s, in a piece called A Grand Grand Overture. Malcolm Arnold's rendition of this piece featured some even more interesting percussion. It featured rifles, of course, and then vacuum cleaners. Three vacuum cleaners, two uprights in B-flat, and one, quote, horizontal with detachable sucker in C, (laughs) and an electric floor polisher in E-flat. Oh, my. Maybe we should do a little bit on Malcolm Arnold in the future. He was a, a character. I would love to. Maybe that'll be something Sir coming up. Malcolm Arnold. We will add it to our roster of fun and interesting things we have coming up in 2024. <laughs> the final interesting note that I have about this is that the artillery pieces in particular were used as a benchmark of audio quality or recording reproduction quality in the in the 70s and 80s. In 1979, the record company Telarc made a very famous recording of the 1812 Overture, including artillery. 
and that recording was then used as a benchmark to test how well early hi-fi stereo players could reproduce the dynamic range. So if it passed like the Telarc test, you were going to buy a buy a good stereo. Mm. Well, that is riveting. <laughs> I was trying to think of a p- percussion pun. Um, so shall we then rank our piece on a scale of one to ten? Um, on the count of three, should we both say our ranking? Yeah, on the count of three, we'll both say ten. No, okay, fine. <laughs> one, two, <laughs> two, three, three ten. ten. <laughs> Because so, what else can it be? It's a literal canon. It's there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that is our baseline to which all the others on this list will be held. And with that, we'll move on to another very iconic piece, which is the final movement of Mahler Symphony Number no. 6, which was written in the early 1900s, started around 1903. Um, why this is on this list is not for the entire symphony, as I said, it's just for the final movement, which features the biggest thing in percussion invented by Mahler himself, the Mahler hammer, which I think we've talked about before. We've done a few episodes on Mahler, but I think we have. But for the uninitiated, what is the Mahler hammer? (laughs) That's a great question. So really what a Mahler hammer is, it's nothing more than a big wooden mallet. So basically like the biggest wooden stump you can manage to lift above your head and bring it down on a hollow wooden box or some something big and hollow. So it makes a very resounding but wooden kind of noise, essentially. Expressly not metallic. Yes. Right. That's, that's the biggest quality about the Mahler hammer. Mm-hmm. And so in, in this movement... It is quite iconic if you Google up or YouTube up, I guess, some Mahler hammer examples, you'll see the utmost shenanigans coming up in the percussion section. People climbing up on hammer or climbing up on ladders to use the hammer, Um, multiple people lifting a hammer at once. Um, Of course, there's lots of breakage. Usually you sacrifice either the hammer or the box or both Mm -hmm. in the playing of this instrument. And sometimes with those fails, you then have a lot of superfluous noise in the movement rather than just the big bang that you're going for. Mahler himself described the sound produced by his own hammer to be, quote, brief and mighty, but dull in resonance and with a non-metallic character like the fall of an axe. And I think that's perfect. And the Sixth Symphony, which again is the piece that we're talking about here, the final movement of the Sixth Symphony, the Mahler hammer comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's what was most impressive to me, at least listening to this for in preparation for the episode for the first time in a long time, <laughs> was how how surprising and abrupt and powerful it was. It's because it's not like the whole piece is building to the the thwack. <laughs> right. It is just kind of thrown in there and then the yeah. piece goes on. Right. And and I think that gives it such a lasting impact Mm -hmm. because it's it is its own featured instrument it's not 
you know, it's not like a gong hit or a bass drum or a timpani swell or something like that. That's that's serving to augment the emo the rest of the the orchestra. No, it is the Mahler hammer is featured. It is its own thing, and it gets its time in the sun. Mm-hmm. And I guess going back and speaking on, it's not really meant to be lasting. The Symphony itself has a nickname, Tragic, which Mahler apparently didn't like, and it was actually written during one of his happier, less depressed times of his life. Um, but it does And yet kinda... everyone describes it as dark and terrifying, yeah. or a nihilist work, and, and Mahler But is... it's kind of like, no. this big loud noise is also fleeting, much like happiness might be. Um, it also kind of comes out of other Mahler works like the Titan and, you know, Resurrection. So it just it's a different vibe. And I think creating this random weird instrument that just has this weird hollow sound just really fits. It does. So shall we rank this thing? We shall rank this thing. All right. I would say hmm, I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. But it's literally not a cannon. <laughs> right, but it has the impact of a cannon. Okay. While, while the cannons in the 1812 overture might have, you know, they are literal cannons. They're there, but they are augmenting the piece. They're part of a whole, <laughs> but the impact of the Mahler hammer is felt on its own. All right. And well and well played, I think it stands out. Honestly, it stands out in a way that the a singular cannon blast does not. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't think we have to agree on these rankings, so no. we'll let it slide. Yes. All right. At an objective rating of eight or ten. <laughs> Perfect. An average of nine, it's pretty good. Yeah. So we will move on then to another iconic piece, and that is Leroy Anderson's Sleigh Ride. Uh, now, of course, we are post-holidays, but that doesn't mean that we can't highlight excellent pieces of music, which Sleigh Ride is. And can you guess, listener, what we're highlighting here in Sleigh Ride? Did you say it? Is it the whip crack? <laughs> because it has to be. Yes. Now, talking about things augmenting the piece, I would say the whip crack in this piece really augments it. It's very kind of programmatic um, because you're bouncing along in your sleigh. There's jingle bells. Suddenly everything comes to a stop and you just hear the boom, the crack. And it's like, yeah, someone's just whipped the horse, which honestly kind of brutal. Maybe don't do that. I don't know. I'm not a horse trainer, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it it is quite and pro I'll just say programmatic again, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and it is definitely, I can tell you this from having some percussionist friends in the past, it is what they look forward to all year. <laughs> it's the most wonderful time of the year. It is the most wonderful time to of the year to be a percussionist and get the slapstick part on sleigh ride Mm -hmm. and yes i guess we should specify it is not a literal whip in most cases i think one could argue there's been some performances where an actual whip has been used um but yes usually it's this thing called the what did you call it the slap 
slapstick 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 yeah it's it's like two pieces of wood hinged at the bottom and you just smack them together (laughs) and it makes a very loud noise yes it does all right well i don't think we need this yeah let's let's go one all right ready two three three nine oh you're going really high on these rankings oh absolutely (laughs) it's a holiday cannon okay fair i still say it's not an actual cannon maybe it's my problem with the ranking system yes you said literal cannon and i took that to mean figurative (laughs) (laughs) all right fair enough i'm still gonna keep it at nine though (laughs) it's not as loud as a real cannon we'll say that but it is inventive (laughs) Yes, it is. And inventive is what I would certainly call the next piece as well. Yes. Which is The Water Passion After St. Matthew by a modern composer named Tan Dunn. This was written in the year 2000, so of course a very modern piece comparatively to the past three that we've looked at. The Water Passion is called as such because the percussionists have bowls of water that they slap and do different things to to make dripping sounds and splashy watery sounds and really it's like almost like a water concerto in a way i've heard it called the water concerto before as well Mm -hmm. now it's actually for like full orchestra as well as soloists and chorus so basically it is the saint matthew passion but put into this modern setting. I think the water makes it sound so cinematic. Like, yeah. like in a lot of, uh, gosh, like, like music videos, I guess, or movies, obviously you have other sound design going on in the background. It's not just the music. And that really like brings the story to life. So I think having the water in the background here, it's like, like the first part of it, you're having a baptism. It's like, of course, you're going to have water there. Of course, there's going to be right. water sounds. So like, it's just, I think, so inventive and so cool. And the number of ways they can make different noises with the water. Like you think, how much can you do with water? You're just going to slap it around and splash it. Like it's just going to sound like splashing. But like they do some incredible work in here, um, which I guess actually brings me to another point. We should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. We do have a spot of... <laughs> we do have... I'll, I'll take over. We do have a Spotify playlist of all of these pieces yes. that's linked in the description below. So if you don't know, if you're not familiar with every piece that we're talking about, go listen to them. And you can kind of listen along because we're going in order of yes. that playlist. Yes, I promise it's in order. Uh, I'll also have some YouTube videos linked. It's really cool to watch this performed as well. Yes. Because then you can see how they're making the noise. The other thing that I love about this is that in most record, like the recordings of this take on a much different quality than a typical orchestral recording because the water is not able to be mic'd like a normal instrument. You really do have to use more of an area mic rather than something that's focused on a particular instrument or a contact mic like some percussion instruments do. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of bleed. You get a lot of hall sound in these recordings which is different 
than most classical music recordings where a lot of times they're very, very curated, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. These, a lot of times recordings of this piece feel very alive and feel yeah. very open. I think it'd be so cool to see live. Yeah, I'd be absolutely. happy to see that concert. I'm happy to see Me any too. concert, but like that'd be really cool. All right, so let's go ahead and rate this. All right. Three. Wait. <laughs> we'll count <laughs> upwards, not backwards. All right. All right. One, two, three. Ten. Ten. Yay! Yes. All right. It's I've taken your literal versus not literal canon to heart, and this is just so inventive. I have to give it ten. It is. All right. Next, next piece on the list is Verdi's Il Trovatore Anvil Chorus. Ha! <laughs> How iconic. Yes. So the Anvil Chorus from, of course, the opera, as you might think. Um, the first place that I ever was exposed to this is in the old Marx Brothers film, A Night at the Opera. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Asa. I haven't seen the old film, no. Okay. Basically, they infiltrate the opera and cause shenanigans. That's not what we're talking about today, though. The reason this is here is because as the chorus is singing, they literally have someone on stage, maybe also down in the pit, but I think they usually do this on stage if possible, with hammers on an actual anvil making a very obnoxious, loud clanking noise to the beat. It's it's great. And it's one of those pieces that you've pro almost certainly heard in other forms of modern media, um, but maybe not exactly recognize it as the Anvil Chorus, because uh, it's got a very recognizable chorus. Mm -hmm. It's pretty catchy. Pretty fun. It is. <laughs> nice it and is. Italian, and, you know. And I rate it one, two, three, a six. ten. Oh my gosh, a are you six. just going to rate them all a ten? I don't know yet, but so oh, far geez. they're all tens. Okay, well, see, I I feel like it's just a little too obvious, but maybe that's a bad criteria. I don't I'll change it. It's a nine. <laughs> it's fine. There you go. There you go. Peer pressure from one peer. And speaking of peers, from one blacksmith to another, the next piece, Song of the Blacksmith by Gustav Holst. In addition to weird and wacky time signatures. This piece is typically performed with weird and wacky percussion that can only have come from the modern era, the break drum. Allison, <laughs> what is a break drum? So, you know what a break is, Asa? Uh, like what? Like the break on my cars? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you take that out of your car, you put it up on the stage, and you hit it. And it suddenly is... it's a drum. <laughs> It's a break drum drum. Yes. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's supposed to sound like the anvil. So, right. I mean, one could argue, well, why not just get an anvil? Because breaks are a little easier to come across than anvils are, apparently. And they have a very similar sound in this case. A lot of modern band music actually starts to use the break drum um, because of that anvil like quality, but it's not quite as like piercing mm -hmm. as an anvil and of course it's easier for high school bands to get a hold of yeah you just go out to your local junkyard for an outing of <laughs> well you go out meddling. to your local high school parking lot and there's probably a 
break you, drum that you can We get. are not encouraging you to go to a random car and take their brakes. Please do not do this. <laughs> oh, you mean that your high school wasn't full of kids' cars just sitting up there up on blocks? No. No, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that yours was. <laughs> there were a couple oh, no. notable instances. Okay. <laughs> well... Anyway, shall we rate this one? I think we shall rate this one. Okay. One, two, three, nine. 9.9. Wow, okay. (laughs) Why lower than the anvil? It's short. Shorter song. Okay. Way too short. I think that this this could be... it's in part of a larger suite. It is, and the anvil chorus is part of a larger larger opera, and symphony number six final movement is part of... A larger symphony. True. Holst could have and should have expanded on this with the wackiness and the weird time signatures and the break drum for the sole purpose of making high school band directors cry. Instead of harping on the Dargison in the very next (laughs) movement for five minutes. Yeah, instead of having the the same same melody melody repeated a hundred (laughs) times, he should have done something more interesting with this, is what I'm saying. Um, Of note, we both love the whole second suite, so please don't think that we are hating on it. We love it, but this is a good movement, and the Dargison's a bit repetitive. (laughs) Yes. As we said, this is a low-effort episode, so... So, anyway, we will move on to something that's not low effort, which is Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The only other piece of music that I feel like has comparable timpani is also Sprague's Zarathustra. And you know what I was thinking is actually another Copeland, which is Billy the Kid. It has a huge, like, gunfight section in the middle yes. that also features extensive timpani and bass drum and whatnot but yeah i like also sprock zarathustra i'm sorry it didn't make this list but yeah it's right up there yeah fanfare for the common man it's it's just it it is just an exceptional fanfare Mm -hmm. and that includes the the resounding timpani and something i like about the writing for the timpani is the space that's given between each of the big drum hits. Like it gives the timpani time to like fully kind of fade away into the, well, the ether, I guess. Well, to fully resonate. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. And it's just very, very powerful to like hear just a solid drum beat and like just meditate on that for a few seconds before there's more. And then there's brass, and then there's more timpani. (laughs) There's always more timpani. (laughs) Yes, there is. So yeah, there we go. All right. All right. So let's rate this scientifically, Allison. Okay, well, you asked me to rate it scientifically, and I have some thoughts, but if you want to count to three. Two. Okay. Three. Okay. Ten. Three. But actually ten. So I want to say ten because I love it. But on our stupid rating scale that we came up with, I want to say three, because it's literally just a timpani. Like, it's a timpani, so, like, it's not cool. But it sounds so cool, so I'm going to give it a ten. Slay Ride is literally just a two-by-four. <laughs> so, like, if you want to be pedantic... Yeah, but, like, that's not a standard piece of percussion. That's just, like, a piece of wood. Like, that that's inventive a little bit. 
But anyway, I, I do love this, so we're just going to give it a 10. Forget yes. the rating system. <laughs> and speaking of a 10, David Mazlanka's Morning Star. Ah, but really basically any Mazlanka. Just yeah. go look up Mazlanka, David Mazlanka, that is, and listen to his whole output because he has a very iconic style of percussion writing that permeates, I think, almost everything that he's written. You know, it's his whole it's his whole style, but it is you're absolutely right. It is backed the backbone of Mazlanka's like light, sparkly style is is that percussion. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that percussion is he loves the the tuned percussion instruments. So like the in Morningstar, the marimba, the xylophone, the glockenspiel, they all get to play the most wondrous melodies and runs. And it's just so like technical sounding, but like played well. It's just like sparkles in the background. It's so cool. Absolutely. <laughs> Playing Ms. Lanka was some of the most fun that I had in wind band in college. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever we got a Mazlanka piece, it was a win. A win for all. Absolutely. <laughs> and, on, and on that note, it's it's interesting to, to bring up Mazlanka and Holst, I think, in this, because a lot of modern band music is a lot more percussion heavy. Mm -hmm. That's very true, because you do have to sustain a whole percussion section within a band. And of course, a lot of band music is tailored towards like high school students, which they're taking that for a class. You have to include them in the playing. So I think to some extent, composers take that into account for like younger grade pieces. But then that style kind of seeps into like the more upper grade pieces like Mazlanka, if that makes sense. It, it do you does, see what I'm I, saying? I, think, I do see I do see what you're saying. Um, but in general, I think that also modern styles of music are just more and more percussion heavy overall and band wind band that is is a more modern style of ensemble so i yeah. think it follows naturally very true very true so shall we rank this one one two three, three ten. Twelve. Oh, whoa 12 out of 10 asa <laughs> i just really like Ms. Lanka, and it is a horrible tragedy that the United States copyright system will not allow us to play Ms. Lanka music on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast and do an entire episode about it. Um, but on that note, let's listen to something a little different. Carmina Burana for Wind Band. That's right. Band again. Don't get this confused with the non-Wind Band, because I don't know if the scoring is the same. But in the percussion section, they are asked to to play two beer mugs clanged together, often broken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe, I, I think I'm going to remember this story correctly, and I'm really sorry if I don't, but I believe that at, I think it was the 2012 Allstate, Colorado Allstate Band, our guest conductor was Jerry Junkin, famed band director in the business. He loves to conduct Carmina Barana at these kind of functions, and for good reason. He's very good at it, and it's a very good piece. But he had a meeting with the percussionists about where to get the beer mugs from and how to play the beer mugs and what to do if they broke. <laughs> <laughs> so he came prepared. 
But basically, the Carmina Burana suite is kind of like a parody on the medieval church. And like, instead of it being like all solemn and praise God, it's more like we're going to the tavern to drink because we're monks. And <laughs> hence the beer mugs. It's all ambiance and atmosphere. And that atmosphere we will rate we now shall. scientifically. Yes. In one, two, three, seven. Ten. <laughs> you are not taking this seriously at all. Fill, fill those mugs with some good beer, and it's a ten. Okay, I just feel like you could have achieved the same sound with a break drum instead. Maybe just had the mugs up there for show, but they often break, and that's dangerous for our poor percussionist hands. Well, then you just get to play the broom and dustpan. <laughs> Or the hospital bed as your hand is being bandaged up from the broken mug. I would hope not. Yeah, I'd hope not too, but stranger things have happened. (laughs) And speaking of stranger things, not sure this really counts, but I put it on the list anyway. So if you don't feel like rating this one, it's totally fine. But Uh one of my favorite shows is Mozart in the Jungle on Amazon Prime. If you've not seen it, listener and or Asa... You should. It's really good. But basically, it's the world of classical music in New York. And in season four, episode four, they are trying to make the Egmont Overture from of Beethoven fame, um, trying to make it cool, I guess. Like it just it's not sounding sparkly and good. Like they want to add a little something to it. So Sir Thomas, the conductor, he's prowling around town trying to think of what can he do to make the orchestra sound better here. Um, he comes across a motorcycle gang and he thinks back to his youth of when he was in a motorcycle gang before he was a world famous <laughs> conductor. And he says, aha, that's it. So he brings a motorcycle into the orchestra hall and somehow has the engines tuned up in such a way that when the different gears are played, it will like have different tones. So basically like motorcycle pedal tone. Under Much like the Malcolm egg- Arnold's vacuum. Exactly. So maybe that's where they got the inspiration for the show. But anyway, so it's just Beethoven's Egmont Overture with a motorcycle in the background. <laughs> And that is called the Egmont for Harley Hubcaps and Orchestra. Yes. (laughs) Found on the Spotify playlist. I honestly don't know if I'll be able to find it on YouTube. I tried searching up the scene and it wasn't there. So I'll I'll try harder. Probably copyrighted. Yeah, probably. Um, But as I said, it's on Amazon Prime. Season four, episode four. Let's rate it. Yes. One. Let's rate it. Two, Two. Three. Three. Five. Five. Simply because I haven't seen the show. Okay. Well, I, I I'm also sure it would be a ten, but... Simply because it's not real is what I'm saying. Ah, uh, I see. I mean, I guess it is real, <laughs> but, you know. Anyway, what is real? Peter and the Wolf is a real piece about a fake boy. <laughs> and Narrated by the very real David Bowie in most instances. Yes. In the most iconic instance. <laughs> So this is on here because the bass drum and timpani are meant to be, believe it or not, again, gunshots. It's the iconic sound for percussion, I guess. Part of the hunter's theme, where the hunters, of course, come out through the woods firing their rifles, which sounds very dangerous around poor Peter's house. 
and Peter implores them to stop doing such a thing and help him take the wolf to the zoo. Because that's what you do with wild animals. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It is a... Uh, it's an iconic piece, something that we've all probably heard at some point as children, mm -hmm. been played in, as a, a book on tape in a in a car ride somewhere. And it's a really interesting example of how different composers tried to bring classical music to kids, right? So we have things like Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. Which I also could have put on this list just as easily, I suppose. Absolutely. But then on the other hand, you have stuff like this. And both of them are doing something very similar. They're relating the sounds and the feeling and the, the they're relating the sights and sounds of the orchestra to other tangible things in the world, to birds, to guns, to footsteps, um, to make these instruments and these themes accessible to children. Which is admirable. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yes, it is. Um, so in that note, let's rate how admirable this piece actually is in three, two, one, ten. seven. <laughs> All right, ten. Fine. I, yeah, I rate it. I rate it ten for the piccolo alone. Um, piccolo is not a percussion instrument, Asa. Um, this is my rating system. Oh my gosh, you're going rogue. <laughs> I am going rogue. <laughs> Fair. Um, cool. Let's go on. Yes. For the next piece, we move on to Richard Strauss. Oh, the epic tone poemist. Tone poet? Maybe. Um, tone poet? <laughs> tone poet. Yes. You know, he wrote tone poems. So he is the tone <laughs> poet rather than the composer. Um, but he wrote one called The Alpine Symphony, which is another great programmatic work, which all the tone poems were, uh, but basically just tells of some hikers going up and down the mountain. Unfortunately, they encounter a storm, and that's where our percussion really shines here and why it's on this list. So they have both a thunder sheet and a wind machine just for uh, iconic effects. Um, so I looked up what thunder sheets and wind machines are. Of course, there's modern wind machines, which are all like electronic, but the old wind machine appeared to be some sort of like wooden drum that spins and has like a whooshing resonance inside of it, essentially. So that's it's cool. got like steel balls. Oh, is that what it is? OK. In it. Yeah, it's it's like a like a snare drum type thing where it's got t stretched skin or membrane. And then inside it are generally steel balls. That okay. Exactly. When you rotate this drum, when you spin it um, about its center, those balls will roll along the edge and then resonate with the resonate on the membrane, creating a sound kind of like wind. All right. So there you go. And then, of course, a thunder sheet. It's a piece of metal that's just hung up and you kind of bang on it and it goes like warble 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 in some instances or it goes bang 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 in other instances <laughs> do you like those sound effects were they good i so i will mention there because there will be someone who who corrects me there are other ways to do a wind machine you can do a rotating drum on some sort of like a fabric for example mm -hmm. um or if you were to just google wind machine all you get are fans <laughs> Uh, which 
is also valid. <laughs> they are wind machines, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I think that both of these are used to great effect. You know, I think it's fun looking at all the different possibilities that composers come up with through the years of storms. Like we can go back to Antonio Vivaldi in the summer concerto and he's got a storm in there. Of course, Beethoven's pastoral symphony. He's got a storm in there. Mm-hmm. The Alpine symphony. We got a big old storm right here. Um, I think it's getting just- more and more literally orchestrated yeah like <laughs> as with, as time moves forward with this one it's like literally there's these big noises and actually in some renditions as well they say augment the percussion with just recorded rain noises essentially mm-hmm. so i mean then you're really getting into like it's literally raining here almost except right. you're not getting wet oh my gosh this would be so fun to perform like outdoors yes, it would. <laughs> I wonder if, I mean, you bring up sort of an interesting thought. I wonder if Beethoven would have used a thunder sheet if it had been available or a wind machine yeah. to know, make a like, storm. I feel like he would. Uh, yeah. Of course, we're just presuming what Beethoven was like, but I feel like he'd be mm-hmm. cool and he'd want to like get on with these new percussion techniques. I think he would do it. I think he would too. And I think that he would rate this. One, two, three. Ten. Ten. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and with that, we come to our 13th and final piece. Just barely making the cut, but also maybe the crowning jewel. It is Eric Satie's Parade. Okay. Eric <laughs> Satie. The iconic man with pianos stacked upon each other. Yes. Um, so Parade is actually written for the Ballet Rouges, Rouge, which of course performed Stravinsky's famous Rite of Spring to much appall of the audience. Um, they were known for doing very experimental works, which Parade definitely is. Um, basically, it's just a collection of weird little pieces of people doing stuff, <laughs> um, but it, <laughs> it uses some really interesting uh instruments or not so much instruments so there are foghorns pistols literal guns being shot there's glass bottles that are being clanged upon and in one movement there's a typewriter that's being used for background effect um there's a lot more just kind of like rattles and noise making things like Satie just wanted noise basically it was meant to kind of evoke like a city street almost and that's that's exactly what it sounds like. It was received, I would say, about as well as the Rite of Spring. <laughs> when it was premiered in 1917, sources say that it turned into pretty much a riot. <laughs> what are these the, people doing rioting classical music and ballets? Like I don't they have know. nothing apparently, better to do. <laughs> apparently, the first movement. The first performance, excuse me, of Parade was drowned in uproar, and then there was a court case afterwards <laughs> that resulted in Satie's imprisonment. Wait, about what? For public defamation. Defamation of who? Um, so a, a, a critic named Pouet, 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 wrote published a review of the lambasting the ballet for being unpatriotic. When, because this was World War One, 
1917 true. World War One. So he he's he called it unpatriotic and an outrage on French taste. <laughs> and I I love I love this quote. He 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 railed on Satie for his quote lack of wit, skill, and inventiveness. Lack of inventiveness. Mm. Yeah, I don't think that anyone has ever. I don't think that you could accuse Satie of anything more, anything further from the truth. Right. Um, <laughs> and so he this verbal feud this journalistic feud eventually <laughs> went to court and 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 uh, the source for this is going to be in the description but i would like to read a, a passage verbatim from interlude.hk all right incensed Coteau, the author of the the ballet's story raised his cane at poi's lawyer and was subsequently arrested and beaten by police for repeatedly yelling arse in the courtroom <laughs> Cocteau was eventually fined and Satie sentenced to a week in prison without parole. Oh my. Wow, they didn't have to get violent over music. I know. Oh my gosh. The French take this kind of thing seriously, I guess. The French take this extremely seriously. (laughs) And yeah, so... I mean, for that reason alone, because it resulted in Satie getting a week in prison... And the ballet's author yelling arse in a courtroom. I can't help but rate this a 10. Uh, I will also rate this a 10. Because going by our original criteria, literal canons, I think it checks all the boxes. (laughs) Yeah. And go listen to this. It's on the the playlist, naturally. Um, And it makes just about as much sense to my ears as it probably did to the Parisian audience. Mm Mm-hmm. It'd be another one, I think, fun to see live. I don't know if I'd be as excited about listening to it, but seeing it is probably pretty fun. Maybe maybe with some of Carmina Burana's beers in me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And maybe to tease a little bit of something that we do have on the docket upcoming this year. I'm not going to divulge when because we haven't decided, but we are going to be doing a little bit of a look into pieces that got their composers into hot water. So yes, you'll be hearing Parade more about Satie. May return. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with that, this was kind of a loosey goosey silly episode because, as we said, we didn't want to do research this week. But we promise we'll come back with more definitive facts and mm-hmm. the real truth about classical music. Only here on The Coffee House. If you want more of this hard-hitting journalism, please Hard stick hitting. around. <laughs> exactly. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and stick around. Rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcast. Only Those rate us out of ten, help. please. Only rate us. Uh, well, you can rate us five as long as it's out of five. Um... And until the next time, which I promise will be better, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you really so much for listening. Tchaikovsky's 18-hole overture was performed by the Skidmore College Orchestra. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook at The Coffeehouse Classical Podcast and Instagram at Podcast Coffeehouse. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. 